According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again this morning in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, where we left off, was that a week ago already? Two weeks ago? When was Fassel here? It's been a while. Hebrews chapter 9. We have uh, reference to the new covenant, and we have issues we need to look at here in verses 16 and 17, but they come out of verse 15. And so uh, I want to make sure that we're solid on 15 before we advance, so I'm going to be opening us up with a word of prayer and then moving forward. But we recognize this is one of the most difficult sections of Hebrews, and Hebrews is one of the most difficult books, and some pastors avoid it. I love Hebrews, and I love the warning passages, and I love even the things that seem to be conundrums, because I believe that they are the most special, the most powerful, the most intimate things that God has could be possibly giving us. And uh, recognizing our place in the body of Christ is, is always valuable. So I want to make sure we highlight that here this morning and uh, before we advance and kind of get lost in the details. All right, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to confess any sins privately before the Lord and prepare your heart for the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness. We thank you for the truth of your Word, that not only have you composed absolute truth and put it in writing in the canon of Scripture, Father, you've also indwelled each and every one of us in this present church age, Father, every believer is a believer priest. Every believer today has the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of truth who lives in us will open our eyes this morning as we come humbly before you. We thank you that this study does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. It's about your faithfulness, Father. How faithful are you to open our eyes and to teach us, to feed us, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to, uh, to teach us today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so um, we're going to talk about last will and testament here in uh, verses 16 and 17. But before we get there, we want to recognize verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. For this reason, which means we've got to back up again. What is for this reason? Well, we have issues related to our perfection in verses 11 through 14. The fact that Jesus as the high priest accomplished glorious things. He died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, and he went to heaven. He went to heaven when he ascended and he cleansed the heavenly temple. All right? Now, as far as why it was uncleansed or why it was defiled or why all that, that's, that's a different message centering on the fall of Satan and the angelic conflict and things I'm not going to touch on this morning. But just understand, when he went to heaven, he was doing something that was a fulfillment of what the Levitical priests were doing every day in the earthly replica, that the temple on earth was just a, a replica, it was a facsimile. It was uh, representing what's happening in heaven. But none of those earthly high priests ever got to go to heaven and do what Jesus did, right? The earthly high priest, he would go in on the, on the Day of Atonement, he would stand before the Shekinah glory, he would sprinkle the blood on the Day of Atonement, and then he would go right back out. 
He was done for the year. He would come back and do it again the next year. He would come back and do it again the next year. So every high priest on the Day of Atonement got to go within the veil. One day a year, one man, one day a year, crossed within the veil, appeared in the presence of God's glory, sprinkled the blood of the atonement, and then came back out. Big difference. Jesus didn't go through the veil. The veil was rent in two when he died on the cross. He never went into that earthly replica. He had no business in there at all. He wasn't a Levitical priest. Instead, when he rose from the dead, he went to heaven. And he entered into the presence of God in heaven. And he entered into the real holy place, not the earthly replica, the real holy place. And not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. There is no substitute who could take the place of Jesus. Jesus himself, the lamb, is the provision for this redemption. And so we want to recognize this. So all of this now is a summary of what we've studied throughout chapter 9. And so uh, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, still future, the millennium is still future, but he is now the high priest of these future things. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle made without hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he went in and he cleansed it and he opened it and it is open today. It is open for business right here, right now. It is always open for you and for me. He doesn't have to do this again and again and again like those old high priests. Every year they had to go back, Day of Atonement, here we go again. Not so with Jesus. Once and for all. And so we have this. Now, the, if verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. That was the Old Testament, all about the flesh, about the body, about external observance. And they would kill animals and they would sprinkle ashes and they would sprinkle blood and they would ceremonially cleanse people in the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, say, sanctify you in spirit, sanctify you eternally, spiritually? How much more more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's powerful. All right, so we embrace all that. We know what Jesus did on the cross, what he did after the cross. He died on the cross, he rose and he went to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple and he cleansed us. Our consciences are cleansed. We are eternally cleansed at the moment of our salvation when that blood gets applied to our account. All right, so this is our salvation. This is why we're believers. This is what he accomplished. He is the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We too are priests. We are cleansed, not just with a bodily cleansing, not just with ceremonial purity to go into an earthly replica. We are, we are cleansed in reality, soul and spirit and everything. We are cleansed to stand before the Father the way Jesus stands before the Father. We are cleansed as Melchizedek priests in Christ. So for this reason... Jesus as the high priest and us as the priesthood in Christ. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now we're advancing the theology. We're advancing the doctrine. We're advancing the argument. We're taking it beyond priesthood. Priesthood is the reason for mediatorship in this case. All right. 
Priesthood is the reason for mediatorship of the new covenant in this case. We want to be clear on that. For this reason, because I think there's bad theology out there that just makes a mash out of all of this, and they just lump it all together as if being the, uh, being the high priest, well, of course he's the mediator. That's not, of course, he's the mediator. But it's the basis for which he is the mediator, that he is cleansed and that we are cleansed, right? So anyway, I want to make sure we're solid on this because it's not, I think, I think sometimes it doesn't just dawn on people. Remember, the new covenant is a contrast with the old covenant, with the first covenant, the law of Moses. And so when the law of Moses was given, right, Moses was the mediator. That's why it's called the law of Moses. Moses was the mediator of that covenant, but he wasn't the high priest, right? Aaron was the high priest. So, you know, if you're an Old Testament believer and you're solid on your Old Testament and you're all excited about high priests and mediators and covenants, this is a bit of a shock. Wait a minute. Aaron was the high priest. Moses was the mediator. But now it's all in Jesus. The high priest and the mediator. And because he's the high priest, because he's the high priest of the reality, not the shadows, he can be the mediator of the new covenant. Because he died. Now, that's what verse 15 says now. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that purpose clause, since a death has taken place. Now it's not the death that makes him qualified. It's the cleansing work that he did afterwards that makes him qualified. But since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, and so this is now what we've got to deal with. And if I I lost my cheat sheet, so let me just find it. Otherwise, I'm going to go to the wrong slide. Let's go to this slide here. All right. Understand this sacrifice. I don't think I need this slide. Well, maybe I do. All right. This was two weeks ago. All right. And we want to make sure we're solid on this because this gets so mashed together, it gets so blended, it gets so confused. Uh, people today try to steal Israel's blessings when there's no reason to. They're, they're lower than our blessings anyway. Why steal Israel's blessings when ours are greater? But the, uh, this is what they end up doing. All right. So understand, Israel was a redeemed nation and they stood in a broken relationship to their Redeemer. That's why they're getting a new covenant. Not like my old covenant, not like my covenant which they broke, says the Lord, although I was a husband to them. All right? They broke that covenant. Jeremiah 31, 32. They're still, though, a redeemed people. They were brought out of Egypt. They are a redeemed people. They are the covenant people because God made unconditional covenants with them through Abraham and through David. And the issue now is, all right, Israel, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they have eternal promises through Abraham and David, but they also are in a broken relationship through this covenant of Moses. So that's a problem. How is it that that can be resolved so that God can give them the inheritance, that is the covenant promises through Abraham and David? See, because they're in a broken relationship with that covenant. They're standing there as a, in a broken relationship, and which means... They are the objects of the curse. 
they had to rehearse the blessings and the cursings. Mosaic covenant was a law of blessing and cursings. It was conditional. And they were so totally on the cursing side of things, right? They were in open rebellion. He sent them to Babylon and they still didn't repent. He brought them back from Babylon, they still didn't repent. He sent the Christ and they crucified the Christ. All right? Israel is in a broken covenant relationship. And so something has to happen to resolve that Mosaic covenant relationship. That's what we're learning here in Hebrews chapter 9. All right? Because it says, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, not the sins, the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The transgressions under the first covenant. That's important. All right, so I'm going to draw pictures. Do pictures help? They help me. I'm, I'm visual. I like pictures. Let's open uh, this thing. This is my, and I will dazzle you with my art. All right, let's just do this. So take a piece of paper, put a line down the middle. Somehow, line down the middle. It's not dry. Draw. Oh, no. Here we go. Ah, pen is dead. All right. So take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle. <laughs> Pretend I'm doing this here on the screen. All right. All right, well then, that was a good idea. The Holy Spirit told me not to do that. (laughs) All right, so understand, just about getting saved, okay? Understand human beings, since Adam sinned, all of his offspring are in Adam. We're all unbelievers. We're all condemned in Adam, right? We're all sinners in Adam. And so God in order to save us, had to satisfy the requirements of that condition. The wages of sin is death. And so, even though we were the sinners and we deserved it, God sent His Son. And God sent His Son to accept that punishment in our place. Our sins were imputed to Him. God poured out His wrath on Him. God was satisfied, propitiation, satisfied. Now he's free, God is perfectly free to extend grace to all who believe. We can believe in Christ, we can be forgiven because justice is satisfied. That issue has been resolved, okay? And I think we're all clear on that. That should be good. If you're a believer, this is how you got saved. (laughs) All right, now... We're going to carry that across to the other side of your piece of paper that you put the line down the middle. And you've got a people with a problem. Just like on the left side, on the right side, we've got a people with a problem. In this case, it's not all of Adamic humanity. In this case, on the right side of your page, it's the nation of Israel. It's the Jewish people. And they've got a problem. Okay? On top of the salvation problem. But they've got another problem. And this problem is Mosaic Covenant. They are in a broken relationship with that Mosaic Covenant. And so God has made a provision by which 
He can satisfy the righteous demands of justice connected to that broken covenant. You see how this is analogous? How this is this correlates? All right. So, all right, the wages of sin is death. We get that on this side. But on this side of the paper, the consequences of breaking Mosaic covenant, the consequences, for example, as it says here, the transgressions under the first covenant. What are the consequences for the covenant nation being in a broken relationship with Mosaic covenant? Well, it's the curse. It's the, actually, it's a litany of curses that they had to recite. And so there needs to be a provision for that. There needs to be a resolution to that. The righteousness and justice of God has to be propitiated, satisfied. He can't just say, oh, well, you blew it. You're a bunch of losers. Let's just throw that covenant away. Here's a new covenant. You know, do better next time, right? He can't do that. Not with his covenant nation anymore that he could save us without handling the sin issue, right? The cross is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. If he doesn't resolve the sin issue, he can't be gracious towards us. The same thing is true on this other side of the ledger. And it's it's the same cross that accomplishes both sides of the ledger, by the way. Have you picked up on that? All right. Because Jesus was doing multiple things on that cross. Because he was handling the left side of your paper with our sins in Adam, but he was also handling the right side of your paper with Israel's covenant transgressions. You know, when you look at verse 15 and you say, okay, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. And too often a church age believer will read that and say, well, that's me. I'm a sinner. He died for my sins. You're reading that wrong. You're actually reading into that based upon other verses of the Bible that do talk about you as a sinner and your sins and Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but he died on the cross for other things as well. Namely, the transgressions committed by Israel under the first covenant. And so this too, he serves as a substitute. He serves as a representative. He serves as the king, Messiah, whom they rejected. (laughs) They said, his blood be upon us and upon our children forever. And Jesus said, forgive them, they know not what they do. And so he is a representative, he is a substitute, and what does he do? Remember, the wages of sin is death. What are the consequences of covenant violation? Curses. And he became a curse. In fact, Galatians teaches this explicitly, that he became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. Now for you and I, we were never under the law, so why do we care? (laughs) You know, we're happy that he redeemed us from our sins and now we're in Christ, we're not in Adam, we're in Christ, we're saved, we have eternal life. Yes, fine and dandy, that's this side of the paper. But over here on this side of the paper, Israel under the curse in a broken relationship with Mosaic Covenant. God is going to not abolish the law, he's going to fulfill the law. He's going to allow for the Father to execute all of the wrath, all of the judgment, all of the consequences of Israel's covenant transgression. And Jesus accepts it. And it's executed. And it's finished. The Father is well pleased. And since there has now been a death, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, Those who have been called, that's not church age election, that's Israel's national corporate election. 
those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Abrahamic covenant, the eternal inheritance of the land, seed, and blessing for the Jewish people. Isn't this beautiful? So you have the analogy of our personal salvation on this side of the paper, and then you have the the reality of Israel's corporate salvation over here on this side of the the piece of paper. And the, and the, the parallel follows every step of the way. All right. So now, he has met the righteous demands of Mosaic Covenant. He is now perfectly free to give them a new covenant. Perfectly free to give them a new covenant. All right. So we have Israel as a redeemed nation stood in a broken relationship to their Redeemer, having broken the covenant they were placed under as a redeemed nation. A greater sacrifice, a conscience cleansing sacrifice, a once and for all perfecting sacrifice makes Jesus Christ suitable to mediate the new covenant. It also, by the way, makes us, the body of Christ, suitable to minister the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 and 40. In fact, apart from us, they cannot be made perfect. Apart from the body of Christ in the church age, no Old Testament believer can enter into their eternal inheritance. It, it takes a mediator and ministers to, to place them in that positional truth place of blessing. All right. This greater sacrifice did not abolish the first covenant, but fulfilled it. All of those shadows, all of those types, everything that the blood offering represented and the drink offering and the grain offering and all the Levitical stuff was fulfilled in Christ. A victorious conclusion, that's an ekbasis, a victorious conclusion that in the future will provide for Israel's broken relationship to be restored. See, just as you know, the cross provided for you to be saved, Jesus died in 33 AD. I was saved in 1973. So yeah, there was a bit of time that passed in between there, between when he died on the cross and when his blood was applied to me. Same thing with Israel. He died on the cross, but the blood's not applied to Israel as a nation yet. The Jewish nation will be brought under the bond of the new covenant at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Once he defeats Antichrist, once he conquers an Armageddon, once he regathers the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. Then he will apply the blood to them and bring them into a restored relationship. They will then receive their eternal national inheritance. The Jewish people have a future. We don't want to lose sight of that or we don't want to go into replacement theology and have the church stealing all of Israel's blessings. That's insane anyway. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The, the bride's blessings are greater than Israel's anyway. Why would we want to steal their blessings? All right, now, that's powerful. I mean, there is such depth there in verse 15. But a death has taken place. A death has taken place. And you talk about a contrast. A death has taken place when God made the covenant with Abraham, who died? God didn't die. Abraham didn't die. It was a sacrificial animal that died, right? When God made a covenant with David, who died? God didn't die. David didn't die. Sacrificial animals, right? Here, with this new covenant, God died in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. There was no sacrificial animal. There was no substitute. There, was, there could be no animal substitute 
to take the place of Jesus. And it's startling because most of God's covenant language begins with things like, as I live, declares the Lord. We saw one this morning, as I live, declares the Lord. Well, with the new covenant, it's not as I live, it's since I died. Since I died, says the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. All right, so now we have a little bit of an illustration in verses 16 and 17. The author of Hebrews does what uh, so many great Bible teachers do. He, he keys off of a word and then he uses another use of that word to illustrate so that we can understand. In this case, it's the word covenant that also means last will and testament. Okay? And so we have this, uh, this illustration now in verses 16 and 17. For where a covenant is or where a testament is, and uh, if you're reading the New King James or Old King James or some other translation, you might even have testimony in there instead of covenant. Where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. And so we get to have a little bit of an illustration here. And the author is picking on the vocabulary and using it to kind of make his point in a different way. To make a point with a human experience that we all can relate to. Um, Chances are um, none of us have been party to an international treaty. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, you know, tell me after class. But if if you've ever been a signatory to an international treaty between two nations, uh, few of us have done that, okay? That's what a brief is, a covenant. It's a treaty, it's an agreement between two parties. And in the case of God and man, then it's a, like a suzerain vassal treaty, it's from a superior to a subject. Because God is superior and the earthly nation is a subject nation, a client nation. All right. And so we don't often relate to treaties. We relate better to, to contracts. I can relate better to a contract, and sometimes bereath is used as a contract. I can relate better to will. Or testament, if you get your lawyer and you make up a will and you outline um, the things you're giving away. You know, who gets this and who gets this and the children you like, the children you don't like. And, and that's just your total sovereignty. And we can relate to that. Everybody can relate to that. And that's why he switches now. And, and so if you ever want to do the vocabulary study, bereath in the Hebrew has a pretty broad range, but I can't find a single range where bereath includes last will and testament. When it gets translated into the Greek in the Septuagint and in the New Testament usage, the the Greek word is diatheke. And diatheke, not only does diatheke cover everything bereath covered, but diatheke also has within its scope, within its range of usage, it has last will and testament. And so really, the author here while he's talking to these former priests, while he's talking to these Hebrew experts, he actually plays off of the Greek usage of diatheke and says, you know what? If somebody's making out a will, you never execute that will until the guy's dead. Right? That's the point. And he's keying off on that here with this illustration. All right. Diatheke. Diatheke is the, is the Greek word for covenant, but it also is used of a will or a testament. Your last will and testament. In this case, you're 
not making a covenant treaty with another nation. You're just actually granting a bequest to your heirs. So in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, the author of Hebrews keys off of his expression, eternal inheritance. He just mentioned that eternal inheritance. And right in the, in the aftermath of mentioning the eternal inheritance, he says, speaking of inheritance and last wills and testaments, where a, where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. So the author of Hebrews keys off of his expression, eternal inheritance, and he switches his diatheke usage from covenant to testament. For just for a short illustration, and it's only for verse 16, it's only for verse 17. Everything after that, to the end of the chapter, to the end of the book, you'll notice uh, starting right off here in verse 18, even the first testament, the first covenant, was not inaugurated without blood. So when Moses gave his covenant, there was bloodshed. Animals died when Moses made that first covenant. So we're back to covenant again in, in verses 18 to the end of the chapter. But for 16 and 17, it's better for us in English to take the Greek diatheke and render it as testament or will or last will and testament or however you want to phrase it. That's what he's using as an illustration. So he switches his diatheke usage from covenant to testament to make a short illustration. And I mentioned all great Bible teachers will do this. Paul did this. Jesus did this. The author of Hebrews is doing this. The Apostle Paul uses a similar logic as an illustration for the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3, verses 15 and 16. So I'm going to get to that in a moment. Let's just talk here, though, um, in these verses. Where a covenant is, where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. All right. Now that's true of a will. That's not true of a covenant or a treaty. <laughs> when uh, you know, if, if Nebuchadnezzar makes a covenant with King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have to die for his covenant treaty with Jehoiakim to go into effect. In a treaty, no one has to die. In a in a mortgage payment, nobody has to die. In a car payment, nobody has to die. We we can enter into contracts without dying. We do it all the time. The only legal document where somebody has to die is a last will and testament because that gets completed and then when the guy dies, it gets executed, right? All right. And so that's the point. And, and really it says it's valid only when men are dead for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. You know, if the guy's still alive, guess what? He can write a new one tomorrow. <laughs> you can make him angry and whatever and he'll write you out of it. And then, uh, and then, you know, a week after that, somebody else will make him angry. So he writes them out of it and puts you back in. And he might have four or five or ten or however many until he reaches the last will and testament, the most recent one. Each new one that comes invalidates all the previous ones. And so whatever is last, you know, that's the one. As soon as he's dead, all right, game over, here we go. Let's, uh, let's read the last thing that he wrote. And so this is the point. And, and really, once the death certificate is signed and, the, and the, of course we get probate and courts and stuff, but once uh, the, the, the man is deceased and the executor has the will in hand and 
I mean, what's left to do? What's left to do but see what you're getting and go get it? Okay? And that's where Israel is right now. What's left to do? They are so imminent in their kingdom. They are so imminent in their millennial blessings, their eternal inheritance. When John the Baptist came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, now with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what's left to be done? Israel, all they have to do is repent and acknowledge Christ as their Savior. Everything else is done. A death has taken place. Let's read that will and get into the inheritance. Okay, that's how imminent it is. And, and really, it's a, it's a striking usage and it's a nice illustration. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's common to the human experience. Analogous realities in the human experience are useful to explain various realities in God's dealing with man. All right, uh, I mentioned Galatians chapter 3. We can look at that in Galatians chapter 3. Paul will employ a similar line of argument in verses 15 and 16. And uh, this one I don't think relates to wills and testaments. This one I think relates more to treaties, to covenants, uh, to contracts. But still, he uses human language to illustrate the divine reality. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. If you did such a thing or even try to do such a thing, you're fundamentally, you're just breaking the covenant is what you're doing. You're breaking the contract. So you sign a contract for a car purchase. You sign a contract for a house. You sign a mortgage. And, and, and so the terms are stipulated and you sign it. The, the, the bank signs it and everything's agreed. And here it is. And then you go home, and then you decide, eh, you know, I really can't afford all that. I'm only going to pay this amount instead. Well, wait a minute. You can't just do that. You signed it. They signed it. It's finalized. You can't change the terms if you attempt such a goofy thing. You're in fundamental violation of, you're in a broken covenant. You're in a broken contract. The bank's going to come along and say, that's not your house. That's, you know, get out foreclosure, say, or repossession of your car or whatever, because the terms are set. Anyway, Paul uses this and he says, you know, when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it, which is like God made promises to Israel. He can't just chuck it and give those promises to the church. How insane is that? All right, you know, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So there you go. That's the party to the covenant. He can't just switch party to the covenant. He ratified this one. It's eternal. It's unbreakable. In, in the Abrahamic covenant, it's unbreakable. Okay? I mean, think how ludicrous it is. The human experience. Even when we, when we uh, one thing we do have is, as a covenant relationship is marriage, right? The covenant relationship of marriage. And you stand before the Lord and you say, I will. Yeah, it's the language of covenant. You know, forsaking all others. That means there's just this one girl and then there's billions of others, but this one is yours by covenant. And so 
You can't just rewrite those terms afterwards. Later on, you know, get some white out and change names. <laughs> your covenant relationship, and, and, and you can't possibly claim that you're going to be faithful to that wedding vow just with a different woman. That wedding vow was made with that woman. See, again, this is the insanity that replacement theology takes you to when you say that God has thrown away Israel and replaced it with the church. What kind of liar? If God's that kind of a liar, we're not saved. <laughs> Our eternal life is contingent upon the God of truth saying, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. All right. So this is the illustration here. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, singular, that is Christ. You wonder why we pay attention to grammar and syntax and details of the text why we pay attention to singulars versus plurals? That's rightly dividing the word truth. That's handling accurately what God has given. Even the verb tenses. Big deal when he says God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they're still living. Present tense is a big deal as opposed to past tense, singulars as opposed to plurals. That's why we have the hermeneutic we have, because Scripture demands we have it. Jesus used a similar logic as an illustration for parenting. Matthew seven eleven. He takes an earthly ex- human experience and he says, look at this now, and does this help you understand God any better? If you then, this is part of ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. You know how powerful prayer is? This is where we ask, this is where we seek, this is where we find. And God provides. Everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? What kind of crummy dad is that? Hey dad, I'm hungry. Can I have a loaf? Yeah, here you go. There's a stone. Nobody does that. No, what father? Would, what loving father would do that? See, or if he asked for a fish, you'll not give him a snake, will he? You know, what father would do that? Kid wanted a fish. I'm not going to give him a snake. That's that's ridiculous. So if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, in other words, in the human experience of things, even evil humans still understand what's normal and good and what a father should give to his son. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? The point being is that there's a human experience that can teach us. And so Jesus uses that to teach that our Father's a loving Father. He's not a malicious Father. He's not wicked. He's not you know, a trickster. Allah's a trickster and the Quran says so. The God, our God, is not a trickster and the Bible says so. Our God is good and loving and fair and righteous. And He gives us what we need before we even ask. He knows what we need. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? See, He gives all good things. Not one good thing does He withhold from those who walk with Him. We've got, uh, we've got this promise we'll be seeing on Wednesday about uh, my God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what God does. That's why He's a Father. All right. By the way, 
Allah is not a father, and the, and the Quran says so. Allah has never begotten anybody, and the Quran says so. So that Allah thing that the Quran is talking about and God that our Bible is talking about, entirely different. And, uh, and I love, of course, ours. Because <laughs> our loving Father sent His Son that we could have eternal life. How about that? So by taking diatheke and playing off the expression of inheritance and switching from covenant to testament, the author of Hebrews is making a point here. Somebody has died, and it's time to collect the inheritance, all right? Somebody has died so that we can have this inheritance. And now this imminency of Israel and their kingdom inheritance is ready to be distributed, and that's a reality. Analogous realities in the human experience are useful to explain various realities in God's dealings with man. The point here in Hebrews is clear. Any man can change his will at any time he wants before he dies. You can change it tomorrow, the next day. You can change it every day for a year if you want. You're probably paying attorney fees or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) But hey, you can do it if you want. Once he dies, he cannot be changed again. The last will and testament is the last will and testament. Okay? Anything that came before is invalidated by this last will and testament. The heirs have every expectation of their inheritance. And so, you know, if, um, if, they, if you have certain heirs that are a little bit um, uncomfortable, they're a little bit uh, <laughs> dubious as to their inheritance status, um, you know, a lot of movies portray this up. You know, the guys are sitting there and they're waiting and, you know, they think they're going to get all this stuff and, you know, it goes to the cat or something, you know. And, they, and then, then they're mad and siblings start fighting. And I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny in certain comedies, but it's not funny when there's a lot of families that kind of work like that. But now imagine where Israel is as a nation. Because they're in a broken covenant relationship. They're redeemed people, redeemed out of bondage from Egypt. They're a covenant people having covenant promises with Abraham, David, and Moses. The problem is, is that Moses' covenant is a conditional covenant and they are in all kinds of broken relationship. They are subject to the curse. They have no expectation of the Abrahamic inheritance because they're still subject to that Mosaic curse. And so in that kind of a situation, they'd be trembling. They'd be wondering, how do, we, how do we resolve this? We should be receiving these unconditional promises of Abraham, but we're also receiving these conditional curses of Moses. Jesus went to the cross. He became the curse. He fulfilled the Mosaic curses so that he is now free to come a second time without reference to sin. He can now come a second time and bring Israel into their covenant blessings. You can and give them a new covenant to replace the Mosaic covenant, the covenant which they broke, he kept. Now we can give them the new covenant and give them the kingdom. They can have all of the eternal inheritance of Abraham by virtue of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. All right. 
The heirs have every expectation of their inheritance. The heirs have every expectation of their inheritance. Now this can only come about, by the way, if you're a Jew- Jewish person today and you don't know that Jesus is the Messiah, what hope do they have? They're still waiting for him to come the first time. They've got to recognize that he came the first time and they crucified him. They have to look upon the Messiah whom they crucified. They have to call upon the Christ. He who calls upon me will be saved. They have to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to confess that he came that first time and they crucified him. Those issues too are uh, useful prophetic studies. All right. So the heirs have every expectation of their inheritance. Remember, I said way back when we began, this is like our 85th class in Hebrews, right? So who's been to all 85 of these? I don't know. But the, um, there's a lot of meat in this book. And by the time we're done, we'll average maybe, I don't know, 10 per, per chapter, whatever we end up averaging. But by the time we're done, we realize we could start all over in chapter 1 again and go right back and dig up even more. Because this is one of the deepest books our Bible has. But recognize what I said all those lessons ago when I first introduced the book. Hebrews is a powerful study for church-age believers, you and I today. A powerful study as it relates to our Melchizedek priesthood and how we function today in the, in the heavenly places. How do we operate in the Holy of Holies? We don't go into the earthly replica. We go into heaven itself. We enter through the veil that is His flesh. We don't enter into an earthly replica, all right? Hebrews is powerful for us. The apostle and high priest of our confession, running with endurance the race that's set before us, the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, Jesus himself being the greatest of all that cloud of witnesses, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews is marvelous for the priestly function of the church age. Hebrews is also marvelous for circumstances that aren't here yet, that is, tribulational believers after the rapture. When that trumpet sounds and you and I are out of here, at the rapture of the church, right, which could be today, it could be right now, it could be before the end of this class, we're going to hear that trumpet and all of us are launching out of here, okay? From that moment on, with the body of Christ gone, God resumes His program with Israel, It's currently on hold. Hold comes off when the church departs. All right, understand that. Not the 77s, that's a different issue. But the the stewardship of Israel starts that split second after the trumpet sounds and we're gone. In the twinkling of an eye, we're gone. In that second twinkling of an eye, Israel has their stewardship back. They're back in the age of Israel and they're under a broken covenant relationship with the Lord their God. And so the book of Hebrews now is going to be so powerful for the remnant. It's going to be for, for those that start to get saved after, in the tribulation. For uh, you know, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the book of Hebrews is going to be center stage. Absolutely center stage with not only Melchizedek priesthood realities, but with new covenant realities. Why it is that Christ and His bride are now the mediator and ministers of this new covenant that's ready to be executed. That's going to be powerful for uh, tribulational saints while everything else is falling apart. You think things are bad now? Just wait until the restrainer is gone. The Holy Spirit is lifted as a restrainer. Just wait until the abyss is opened up and 200 million demons flood this place. Just wait until Antichrist starts giving his mark 
to this lost and dying world. Everyone who takes that mark can't get saved. Think about hell on earth. We think it's bad now. Oh no. All right. And so the conflict when those Jewish evangelists are proclaiming the kingdom of God, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, it's uh, there's going to be a, a price to pay. But uh, I love Vassal's report and what they're going through in Pakistan. Our brothers over there are paying a price. They're cleaning out sewers with a bucket and no, uh, I mean, they name the name of Christ and they suffer the hardship as essentially the slave class of their, I mean, the, the, the lowest caste of their system. It's nothing compared to the tribulation. So Hebrews is going to be vital. Hebrews is vital for us. Hebrews will be vital for them. And, and really, I think it's useful. It helps us if we can kind of read it through with two sets of glasses. You know, so read a chapter as a church age saint and then switch glasses and then read that same chapter as a tribulational saint. Try to pretend and imagine. Put yourself forward into the great tribulation and say, after the rapture, if, I, if I'm a Jewish believer reading this text, how exciting now does this get me? related to the coming kingdom and the, and the new covenant that's about to be bestowed. The fact that the old covenant's been provided for, that Jesus became the curse so that the curse of the law is removed. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. All right. Now, verses 18 through 21. For now we're racing. Breakneck speed, fasten your seatbelts. 18, 19, 20, 21. That's four verses. Holy cow, we're going to cover four verses? All right, well, it's kind of easy because um, they just go so well together and, and they point out what we already know. So let's look at it. Even the first covenant, that is Mosaic Law, even Mosaic law was not inaugurated without blood. The author of Hebrews loves those double negatives. Okay? Not inaugurated without blood. Meaning, okay, blood was shed. The high priest didn't have to die, but an animal died in his place. An animal died, blood was shed. Even the first covenant had blood shed. For when every command had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So this, is, this is, put yourself back now at Sinai. Put yourself back. They are a covenant people. They are a redeemed people. They're brought out of Egypt. And the first order of business, Yahweh has to enter into judgment with his people. And he does so at Sinai. And he puts them under law. And, they, and he reads it. They accept it. They declare they will fulfill it. Ha ha ha. Okay? They don't. Bunch of liars. All right? They broke the law even before Moses was finished carving out the stone tablets. They're down there making a golden calf and fornicating and all the stuff they're doing. All right? But they put them, the Lord puts them under the law. They accept the terms with an oath. The blood is sprinkled. The blood is sprinkled. And so this is spelled out for us here. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, the whole list, thou shalt not murder. Okay, good with that. Thou shalt not steal. All right, good with that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. All right, so 619 commandments of the law, right? The, the 10 plus 
the whole law. The people, uh, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself or the scroll and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Jesus would say something very similar in the upper room when he gives communion. We'll touch upon that here in a moment. So, uh, in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. Now, it wasn't on the same day because they hadn't built the tabernacle yet. It would take time. They would get all the tabernacle instructions. They would get all of the details there that, again, makes your head swim. I lose track. But uh, And then he would equip those two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab. He would equip them to build the tabernacle. And they would build it. And the garments and the furnishings, and the altars, and the tent pegs, and the everything, right? And then once it was finished, they had to be sprinkled with blood. That's what cleanses them, see. Does that seem odd? You know, if I took a bowl of blood and started, you know, splattering it all over my wife's kitchen, uh, she would not be pleased, you're sprinkling blood everywhere. I'm cleansing the kitchen. She'd say, no, you're not. You're splattering blood everywhere. My kitchen's a mess. My kitchen's a wreck. Blood is cleansing in, the, uh, in God's view, ceremonially cleansing in God's view because it represents the blood of Christ, which is cleansing in reality right? It's like when Paul says the giver is the one who profits. And we say, wait a minute. The receiver is the one who profits. We saw that last hour. That's in Philippians, right? The giver is the one that profits. And and humans say, wait a minute. No. If I give you 20 bucks, you're going to profit and I'm out 20 bucks. But God says, He who gives graciously lends to the Lord and it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul says, I'm thankful for the gift. I'm also thankful for the profit which increases to your account. The Philippians are laying up treasure in heaven with all the funds they sent to Paul in prison. So so it is too with blood. We think blood is filthy. We think blood is defiling. We think blood makes a mess of things. God says blood is cleansing. The people have to be cleansed. The scroll has to be cleansed. The altar has to be cleansed. The tabernacle has to be cleansed. And you can imagine, here's Bezalel and Aholiab, and they just finished building the most beautiful Ark of the Covenant ever. Well, the only Ark of the Covenant ever. But they build this thing, and it's shittim wood, it's overlaid, or acacia wood, it's overlaid with gold. It's just glorious. And then Moses says, all right, let me sprinkle this blood now. And Bezalel and Oholiab, we can imagine it. Okay? Because it's new, it's clean. God says it's not clean. It represents a heavenly reality that is definitely not clean. This is a replica, and you know something? This replica needs to be defiled here because the, the one in heaven is waiting cleansing. And it's going to be cleansed with blood. 
So there's so much at work here with respect to the fall of Satan, with respect to the angelic conflict, with respect to the Jewish people as the earthly covenant nation, with respect to the church, the bride of Christ as the heavenly citizenship, uh, corporate body of Christ. All of these things. It's a big picture view of Scripture. And the author of Hebrews expects that his readers are on board with all of that so that they can embrace chapter 9 in, in such a way as we're learning it here today. All right. So he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to law, one may almost say, or one could say, or you might say, all things are cleansed with blood. What was it that cleansed without blood? And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Understand why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted before God? There was no bloodshed with the vegetables. He showed up with the produce of the ground. Here's Farmer Cain showing up with vegetables. God said, there's no blood in that. Abel shows up with a lamb, the sacrificial lamb. You know, when Adam and Eve were naked, vegetables didn't do it. They wrapped themselves up with fig leaves. Said, we were afraid because we were naked. God said, you're still naked. Vegetables, there's no blood in that. Get those fig leaves off. And what did he do? He clothed them with animal skins. Those animals didn't live through the process, right? (laughs) Blood must be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So picture after picture after picture, every book of the Old Testament is all telling this story and then Jesus comes and he fulfills every last bit of this. All right. So according to law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to be a a secular pluralist like so much of this insane generation we live in, if you want to think that there's many paths and whatever and that good Mormons and good Buddhists and good Hindus and good Muslims and whatever, that all good people get to go to hell. No, good people go to hell all the time. But sinners saved by grace go to heaven. There's the issue, okay? It's not about our human goodness. It's about the blood of Christ, that there are no other ways. What an insult. What an insult. You realize how unnecessary the cross is if there's a hundred other ways to get there? Or a thousand other ways to get there? Or even if there's just two? Even if it's just the cross plus one other thing? You just made the cross unnecessary. Because people could have done that one other thing and gone to heaven and the Father could have saved His Son and not put His Son to death. It is necessary. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, what do I got? All right, we're going to pick up here. Ooh, not next week. Two weeks. We'll pick up here. All right, because I want to leave you with this, and I want I want this to be to be something to chew on for a couple of weeks. We're going to go back to Exodus. We're going to see that the, the death of the animal was not the finished work. 
Okay? The death of Christ on the cross is not the finished work of bringing Israel into the new covenant. And in a sense, Jesus said it is finished, I know that. The death of Christ on the cross was not the final process that got you saved either, by the way. That blood had to be applied to you and that happened when you believed in Christ for eternal life. Like I say, for Jesus that was 33 AD, for me it was 1973. A lot of time passed in between there. But the blood of Christ washed away my sins and gave me eternal life. Same as it did for you. Okay? So just think about it in a useful way. The blood that's shed and the blood that's set apart in a little bowl ready to be sprinkled later. And that's going to help us as we study in our new covenant promises. Because the blood has been shed when Jesus died on the cross. But it's set apart in a little bowl and it's ready now to be sprinkled, but it can't be sprinkled on the Jewish nation, on Israel, until they repent, until they call upon the Christ whom they crucified. And they can then receive their millennial kingdom. So we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, two weeks, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for truth. And these are deep, deep things, Father, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active and open our eyes and teach us these things. I thank you that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture in such a way that it uses common everyday life. Little kids asking their dad for a fish or, or a man who writes a will. These are things that are common to the human experience. And through those illustrations, Father, we then can recognize that a death has taken place and that the will is ready to be read, that the uh, bequest is ready to be bestowed upon the heirs. And the heirs for the new covenant, Father, the heirs are Israel, the covenant nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would open our eyes to understand these things and see what our part is. Christ is the mediator and we're in Christ. So, Father, we have a part to play in this. And I ask that you would help us to understand it so that we can prepare even now. I, I, I pray, Father, for this morning and many of the things we're talking about. We've got visitors here today. If anybody is here today that's not yet been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, I pray today is the day. Anybody that's trusting in their own merit, forget it, they have no merit. Their righteousness is as filthy rags. But the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to your account simply by faith. It's been promised. Believe. Accept. It's a gift freely given, freely received. Accept that Jesus took your place on the cross so you could have eternal life. It's a gift. Might today be the day. We thank you, Father, and we praise you. I thank you for the, uh, the blessing that it is to, to learn these things, to grow, to, uh, to keep ourselves in the will of God. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.